All right, take a copy of the scriptures, find John 16. We're going to reference several verses in the passage that we read just a few moments ago. There are notes in the bulletin. You can track along with some of the main ideas in this sermon. This morning we're still in the farewell discourse. Sometimes it's called the upper room discourse. This is a sermon that Jesus delivered in the context of the Passover celebration. And just to remind you of the context, it is the Passover. Jesus is celebrating this meal with his disciples the next day. In fact, this evening is what we would call it. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. They're going to try him overnight. They're going to condemn him to death. They're going to crucify him in the morning, and they're going to bury him before the next afternoon. Jesus knows that his hour has come, and so he is literally saying farewell to his friends. They don't understand how it's all going to play out, but Jesus is saying goodbye. They are not thrilled with the news. Jesus says several times, you ought to be thrilled, but they're not thrilled, and they're sorrowful. We read that in this passage, verse 6. Sorrow has filled their heart. One detail I want to clarify for those of you who are reading closely and paying attention, relates to a little bit of a back and forth here in the farewell discourse. Uh, Here's what your notes say. Despite Jesus' comment in John 16, 5, the disciples have actually been asking questions. Notice in verse 5, Jesus says, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? Which is an interesting statement, because if you rewind the tape, Back to John 13, which is part of the farewell discourse, Peter actually asked the question, where are you going? And if you fast forward to John 14, Thomas doesn't ask it verbatim, but he says, Jesus, we don't know the way to where you're going. How are we going to be able to follow if we don't know where you're going? It's interesting that Jesus here says, none of you have asked, where are you going? when in fact at least two of them have basically asked that exact question. You can look at it and say, well, the Bible's just a mishmash of statements. There's all sorts of contradictions in the Bible. Or you can understand in context what's going on. Jesus is telling the disciples that he's leaving, and they are terrified. They love Jesus. They've invested their lives in following Jesus. They don't understand where would you go if you're leaving this place. And what Jesus has been saying to the disciples, they clearly don't get it yet, is I am leaving this world and I am going back to my Father. What they're not asking about is this mission that Jesus was sent here to accomplish and that when it was accomplished, he would return to heaven. They're just in a fog of confusion about where are you going? Are you going to Lubbock? Are you going to Abilene? Are you going to Samaria? Where are you going? We don't understand where you're going. And Jesus' point here is, you're not asking me about where I'm really going. He's going back to the Father, which brings up the doctrine of the Trinity. You see it all throughout the farewell discourse. The Son of God talking about God the Father, and in this passage, talking about God the Holy Spirit. The Greek word parakletos shows up in this passage. We've talked about it a few times in recent weeks. It literally describes or literally means a friend who comes alongside to help you in a time of trouble. The disciples are about to face a time of trouble. It's why Jesus keeps saying to them, I'm going to send 
the parakletos. We don't have a great English word that really captures the idea of a friend that comes alongside to help you in a time of trouble. English translations search for the right word. They, they say he's the helper, he's the advocate, he's the counselor, he's the comforter. Sometimes they say he's the friend. Sometimes they give up on all these English words and they say he's the paraclete. What he is, is a friend who comes beside you in a time of trouble and he comes to offer help. He comes to offer comfort. That's what Jesus is talking about here. It brings us to the big idea of this passage, a very simple statement. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is essential for the mission of the church. Over the last six months, there's been a lot of debate about who is essential, who is non-essential. We've all learned that the people that work at the toilet uh, toilet paper factory are essential. We need those people. Apparently, we're short on them now. I've heard rumors. We're running out of toilet paper again. That's essential. We need that. That's what we're driving at here. The church has a mission, and if that mission is going to be carried out, the Holy Spirit is essential. He's not just icing on the top of the cake. He's the whole thing. He is essential to the mission that we've been given. You say, well, what's that mission? You can find it in Matthew 28. Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, and I'm with you always to the end of the age when you do that. That's the mission, make disciples. You can find it in Mark 16. Jesus says, go and proclaim the gospel to all of creation. You can find it in Luke 24, where Jesus says to the disciples, on the basis of my life, death, and resurrection, I'm sending you out to bear witness and to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem, but going to all the nations. You can find it in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, even as the Father has sent me, I am sending you, John 20. You can find it in the book of Acts, Acts 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth. You will go out and tell people the good news about me, about my life, death, and my resurrection. That's the mission. Make disciples. Tell everyone on the earth the good news about Jesus. That is our mission. And what Jesus is saying here is, if you're going to fulfill that mission, what we call the Great Commission, the Holy Spirit is essential. You cannot do it apart from the person and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving. We are now officially in Christmas season. We have our trees up. We're decorated. We're ready. In a lot of Southern Baptist churches, when it's Christmas time, we talk about a lady named Lottie Moon. That's a young Lottie on the left and an older Lottie Moon on the right. Lottie was born Charlotte Diggs Moon. She grew up to the height of four feet, three inches tall. She grew up on a tobacco plantation in Virginia, and she made history, really, when you think about Southern Baptists and missions and the Great Commission. In the year 1872, Lottie's older sister, Edmonia, became the first female single Southern Baptist missionary. Women had gone to the mission field before, but they'd always gone with a husband. Edmonia wasn't married. She wanted to go. She appealed to go, and they said, we'll send you. They sent her to China. A year later, 1873, Lottie 
Charlotte Diggs Moon, all four foot three of her, became the second single female Baptist missionary, and she joined her sister in China. She was a remarkable woman. She spoke five languages before she went to the mission field, English, Latin, Greek, Italian, and French, which if my math is right, that's a language for every nine inches that she grew, and some of y'all need to catch up. That's impressive. When she got to the mission field, obviously she learned Chinese. It wasn't particularly hard for her. And for 40 years, she preached to the Chinese people the good news about Jesus. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. She told those people about salvation that could be found only in Jesus Christ. In the early 1900s, China was a rough place. It's a rough place today. It was a rough place in the early 1900s. There was a massive famine. There was a series of wars that contributed to the severity of that famine. In the early 1900s, the people around Lottie Moon were literally starving to death on the streets. She refused to hold back in sharing the good news about Jesus. She also refused to hold back what she had, which was food. And she literally just gave it all away so that people could eat and not starve to death, which meant she didn't eat. And in 1912, they put her on a boat and they sent her home against her wishes. She weighed 50 pounds. They said, you got to go home. That boat made it to the coast of Japan, not very far from China, and she died on the boat. Southern Baptists look at her life and her legacy and her ministry, and they celebrate what God did in her and through her. And we talk about at Christmas in Southern Baptist churches, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. All of the money we give to that offering goes to send missionaries all around the world. When you look back on her life and you think about her story, you think about the thousands of Chinese believers that would look back and say, I trusted in Jesus because this short little woman from Virginia came over to tell me about Jesus. What made that possible? I think there's at least two things that made it possible. On the one hand, Charlotte Diggs Moon was willing to go. She was willing to leave home. She said, I will leave Virginia, a family that was pretty well off. She forsook marriage. She had thoughts of marrying a man named Crawford Toy, who was a Southern Baptist seminary professor. He later became a liberal. She wanted nothing to do with him. He did not want to go to the mission field, and she said, to heck with the whole thing. I'm leaving. And she left. She was willing to go. Southern Baptists were also willing to give. They paid her way. They supported her ministry. They, they supported her on the field. And this was in the aftermath of the Civil War. Times were tough. People were trying to rebuild and get their feet back on the ground. And there were Southern Baptists who were willing to make the sacrifice to give, just like Lottie was willing to make the sacrifice to go. There was going and there was giving. And I would suggest to you that behind all of it, underneath all of it, in all of it, there was the Holy Spirit working in her life, working in the life of congregations who took up offerings to send missionaries, working through what she shared with people in China on the mission field, working in the salvation of countless Chinese people. That's what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about the person of the Holy Spirit, his work in and through our lives, 
and the mission that Jesus has entrusted us to make disciples of all the nations, to tell everyone on earth that they must repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. I want you to notice a few things in this passage. These are important truths. What did Jesus say in this farewell discourse? What did he say about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the mission of the church? The big idea is that the Spirit is essential. We need him every step of the way. Let's break the passage down and talk about some of these truths. Number one, Jesus said that his leaving and the Holy Spirit coming was advantageous. There's your spelling word for the day. It's advantageous for Christians. It is to your advantage that I leave and that I send the helper, the paraclete, the spirit of truth. Now, this is big church. There's a number of things you're not supposed to do in big church. I think somewhere on that list is don't question Jesus, right? Don't question Jesus. Just for a minute, I'm going to do it. When Jesus says, you will be better off. It is to your advantage that I go away. Isn't there a part of you that thinks, yeah, I'm not so sure. I kind of wish you were here. Right now, there's a part of me that thinks that. There's a part of me that thinks, man, if you were here, we wouldn't have to tell people to have faith in a God they can't see. We just, he's here. Remember all the miracles Jesus did? Wouldn't that be great to see? In the middle of a pandemic, wouldn't it be nice to have a guy like Jesus around? Do you remember all the times Jesus showed the disciples all the best fishing holes? Do you know in the Gospels, the disciples who somehow made a living off of fishing, they never catch a single fish unless Jesus tells them where to fish. I need Jesus for my fishing game. I'm lousy at fishing. Jesus, just show me where to put the hook in. I'm in. Healings, teaching, just being present. Did you hear what Jesus said? Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. I don't want to question Jesus, but doesn't that kind of sound like your parents when you're five years old and you're about to get a spanking? And your parents say, honey, This is going to hurt me way more than you. And even when you're five, you know, that's a lie. That's not true. It's going to hurt me way worse than you. Right? You just know that's not right. And you read this and you think, wait a minute. That can't be right. It's better that he goes away. Back up and look at verse 4. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. What are the things that he didn't say from the beginning? Well, if you back up in John 16 and John 15, the things that he just told them are, hey, I'm leaving and the world is going to hate your guts. It's going to be bad. While I was with you, that hatred was directed towards me. So I didn't tell you that from the beginning. But now I'm telling you, the world is going to hate you because I'm going away. They're not going to like you one bit. And you say, well, that is discouraging. And now Jesus says he's leaving and we're better off. How in the world do we make sense of this idea that we are better off without having Jesus here? Let me just suggest three thoughts for your consideration. Number one, don't forget that Jesus died for his people. 
That's where he is going. He's not going on vacation. He's not finally busting out of Nazareth like he's been trying to get out of there his whole life. I am leaving Galilee. I can't wait to get out of here. Moving to Dallas. Been wanting to get out of Odessa all my life. I'm finally leaving Nazareth. Here we go. That's not what he's talking about. He's not retiring. He's not moving off somewhere to do nothing. When he goes away, he's going to die. You understand it is to your advantage that Jesus dies for your sins. I understand you, you want him here. I want him here. But you understand and I understand it is very much to our advantage that Jesus die for our sins. The Bible says God is holy and the Bible says you and I are sinners. And the Bible says that's a really serious problem. It's such a serious problem. We can't fix it. Only God can fix it. He fixed it by sending Jesus to die for our sins. That is to our advantage, very clearly. Secondly, Jesus intercedes for his people. We know the rest of the story. Jesus dies, but then he rises from the dead. He ascends back to heaven where he's with the Father. And we know that in heaven, Jesus is not just kicked back, feet up, thumbs twiddling, waiting on John Hagee or somebody to tell him which blood moon is the one that he's supposed to come back for. That's not what he's doing. He's not passive. He's active. What's he doing? He's interceding for you. Do you think it might be to your advantage that Jesus is praying for you right now? I think it's to our advantage. This is how the Bible describes it. Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. That's to our advantage. Jesus died. More than that, he was raised. That's also to our advantage. And he's at the right hand of God. He is indeed interceding for us. He's not passive right now. He is actively interceding for his people. He's praying for his people. Paul tells Timothy, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Yes, he was our mediator in death, but he continues as our mediator even now. That is very much to our advantage. Thirdly, Jesus dwells with his people. That happens through the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. This is really what God intended in the beginning, that he would be with his people, and it's what God has been working to restore ever since Genesis 3. The situation in Eden was simple. God was there, and human beings were there, and they lived together. They dwelled together. They experienced each other's presence in a direct, unmediated way. But then we sinned, Adam sinned, we sinned with Adam. Our sin caused a separation between us and God. We no longer could enjoy his immediate presence, but that's not the end of the story. God keeps moving closer and closer to sinful people. He shows up to the the patriarchs, men who originally worshipped idols, and he says, look, I'm with you, you're with me, I'm going to be with you in this thing. He tells his people, Israel, you need to build a tent You need a tent because that's where I'm going to live, right in the middle of the camp. I'm going to dwell with you. 2,000 years ago, the word became flesh. Emmanuel was born, God with us. He walked this earth with us. If you're a believer, 
You've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. The Bible describes you as a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwells in you now. And in the end, in the new heavens, the new earth, the new creation, we look forward to a day where there will be no more temple. There will be no more need for a temple because God will be there and his people will be there just like he intended it in the beginning. What a thought. God going to the greatest lengths to be with his people. You don't have to wait for the new heavens and the new earth. You experience it now as a Christian. You have God dwelling with you. That is to your advantage. Jesus died for you. Jesus is interceding for you. Jesus lives with you. What does Jesus have to say about the work of the Spirit and the mission of the church? Here's a second thought. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's the middle part of our passage. The Spirit's job is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, judgment. Verse 8, when he comes, that's the helper, the paraclete, the Spirit. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Convict. Some English translations say convince. Some say prove. Some say show. Here's the basic idea summarized by a Bible scholar named Kent Hughes. Apart from the Holy Spirit, human beings do not understand spiritual realities. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to bring the world's, bring to the world's consciousness three things. A correct perception of sin, number one. A correct perception of righteousness, number two. And a correct perception of judgment, number three. That's all out of verse 8. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, human beings simply do not, cannot understand spiritual truth. Makes me think of when I first moved to Odessa, first started here at Emmanuel, 2014. Uh, One of the first things that we did was get rid of our yellow page ad. We had this big ad in the yellow page, full color lots of information, lots of detail. It was right on the very first page of the church section. That was an upgrade. We paid more money for that. Upgrade for the color, upgrade for the full page, upgrade for the placement, right there at the beginning of the church section in the yellow pages. And we looked at that, and we looked at how much money we were spending on that ad, and we said, you know, not a lot of people use the yellow pages anymore. Most of us just get our phone out and pull up your Safari app or your Chrome app or whatever app you have, and you Google something. Maybe we should not spend those dollars on that sort of advertisement and maybe we ought to spend them elsewhere. So we made that decision. And you know, for the next couple years, once a year, the yellow page salesman would come by the church. And he'd come in, they were the nicest guys you've ever met. All smiles, friendly, oh, church looks great, how's it going? Very social, very interested in what was happening here. And they said, hey, you know, you guys used to be some of our best customers. We're running a special this month. We wanted to know if you wanted to get your ad back. No, I don't think we do. That's a tough job. Selling ads in the yellow pages in a Google world. That's a tough job. You're selling something that very few people are really interested in anymore. You understand that's the job of the Christian. That's the job of someone who bears witness to the truth about Jesus. That's the job of missionaries, Lottie Moon, all of them that have ever gone to tell somebody about Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. 
It means you are essentially offering something to people who don't want what you're offering. The Bible describes it a number of different ways. The Bible describes the gospel as a message that is offensive to lost people. Here's the mission. Go out and tell everyone on the earth something that will offend them. Good luck with that. Here's the mission. You have light and you are going out into a dark world and you're going to offer light, Jesus describes it this way in John 3, to people who actually prefer the darkness. They don't want to come to the light. They love the darkness. And yet your job is to go offer them light. They don't want it. Your job is to go to people, Romans 3, who are not seeking God. In fact, they are running far away from God. And your job is to tell them that they can know God, but they don't want to know God. They're running away from God. That's your job as a Christian. That's your job as a missionary. That's your job as someone who bears witness to the truth about Jesus. Listen, it's a good thing you're not alone in that job. It's a good thing you have a helper. Someone who will come alongside you in a time of trouble when you need help, and he will help you. And guess what he does? He convicts the world of three things. The world, number one, needs to know the horror of unbelief. That is what Jesus says about sin in verse 8 is explained in verse 9 concerning sin because they don't believe in me. You can tell people you're in trouble because you don't believe in Jesus. You have a sin problem, but unless the Spirit convicts them, you might as well be talking to the wall. Secondly, the world needs to know the truth about Jesus. This is verse 8, the idea of righteousness explained in verse 10. Concerning righteousness, Jesus explains it like this, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Meaning, I really am who I claim to be and I really am going to do what I set out to do here. And when I'm done, I'm going back to the Father. I'm the righteous one. I'm the one that offers the righteousness that you need to stand in God's presence. You can't earn that righteous. Righteousness is the Spirit's job to convict people concerning the truth about Jesus. Thirdly, the world needs to know the certainty of judgment. This is verse 8, talking about judgment, explained in verse 11, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Ruler of of this world being Satan, and if Satan is judged at the cross, you can bet your bottom dollar that sinful humanity will also face judgment. It's certain. And it's the Spirit's job as we go out and tell. That's our job. Go tell. It's the Spirit's job to convict, to convince about sin and about the truth about Jesus, about righteousness and about judgment. He is essential for the mission. What does Jesus say here about the work of the Spirit and the mission of the church? One last thought. The Spirit of Truth helps Christians by inspiring and illuminating the Scriptures. He helps us by inspiring and illuminating the Scriptures. There's an interesting promise here in the last little paragraph. Look at verse 13. When the Spirit of Truth comes, He'll guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He'll speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. The question we have to wrestle with is, who is that promise for? Is that promise for the disciples in the room with Jesus at the Passover meal, or is that promise for all of us? And my wishy-washy, maybe wimpy answer is, yes, both. 
but in different ways. The Holy Spirit would be with these men in a unique way as they went out and preached. You understand, when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost to preach, he couldn't say, open your Bible to John 16. It didn't exist yet. So the Holy Spirit is speaking through these men as they preach the good news about Jesus. The Holy Spirit is also working through these men as they write letters, history books, gospels, apocalypses, The Spirit is inspiring the truth of those words. In 2 Timothy, we read that the Scriptures are breathed out by God. Literally, they are spirited out by God. It's the Holy Spirit who wrote those books. Yes, the human author sat down and put pen to paper, but it was the the Spirit of God, Peter says in 2 Peter 1, who carried them along. So that in the end, the words that they wrote weren't just John's words or Paul's words or Jude's words. They were God's words. You understand, when we open this book on a Sunday morning, we're not just hearing from John the Apostle. We're hearing from Almighty God. They're His words. All of them. And this book is complete. It's finished, which means we don't need your submission for 3 Corinthians. You can take 2 Hebrews and just throw it in the trash. We don't need it. The book's done, and it's true. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. You and I don't have any expectation that we're going to write books and they're going to be added to the Scriptures today. We do have the expectation that the Spirit of truth who inspired these words will open our minds to what these words say, to what they mean, to how they apply to our lives. That's illumination. We pray that regularly. We pray what you'll find in 2 Corinthians 4, and I'll just put the reference up. You can look it up later. Paul says, look, the eyes of lost people are blind to the truth of the gospel. They don't see it. But the same God who spoke light into darkness is able to shine the light of the gospel into dark hearts so that they see it. They get it. They're willing to receive it. We pray that regularly here at Emmanuel. We say, God, we're going to study your word. We really need you to open our eyes to what it says. We need you to open our minds to understand it because we're not very smart. So help us in this. God, we need you to open our hearts to receive it because there may be things here that we don't want to hear, but they're your words. They're powerful words, and we want to receive them as such. So, God, we pray that you would illumine our hearts to what the Scripture says. Look, you add all of that together, I think it's the only way you make sense of what happened in the life and the ministry of Lottie Moon. Think about how preposterous the whole story is. Four-foot woman from Virginia gets on a boat and sails to the other side of the world and spends her life telling Chinese people about a Jewish guy who lived 2,000 years ago, died on a cross, rose from the dead so that they could have eternal life. Good luck with that. You know, the crazy thing is that people believed. They came to faith. They heard this gospel message, and remarkably, they received it with joy and with gladness. Is that because Lottie Moon was like the perfect missionary? Is that because she was so convincing? Is that because she was really intimidating at four foot three? 
she was willing to go. People back home were willing to give. In the going and the giving, the gospel was shared, and the Holy Spirit did the convicting about sin, about righteousness, about judgment. And the end result was salvation. People were saved. Lives were changed. You understand, none of that has changed 100 years later in the year 2020 in the United States of America in Texas. That's how it works. We give, we go, we share, we tell, we bear witness, we labor to make disciples, we proclaim the gospel, and as we do that, we have a helper. We're not alone. We have someone who comes alongside of us in a time of trouble, and one of his jobs is to convict, to convince the world is to open our minds and other people's minds to the truth of this book. It is to our advantage that Jesus died and that he ascended to heaven and that he sent the helper into our lives. Let's pray together.